0: Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. This is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing histories of the great Spartan kings or novels set in a plastic cutlery factory, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Today, I'm delighted to welcome an author who has a very clear speciality. He writes about the making of classic movies in extravagant detail and depth. His previous books include The Making of Performance and The Making of the Deer Hunter. And coming up later this year is The Making of Train Spotting*. But his most recent publication has been The Making of Raging Bull, the 1980 Martin Scorsese movie about the life of Jake LaMotta, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci and Kathy Moriarty. Now, his M.O. seems to be to get close to the protagonists, director, actors, producers, whoever has a story to tell and extract every last telling detail. They are masterpieces of research and presentation and make you realise you didn't have the faintest idea about just how impossibly complicated films are to make. So to tell us about his five rules of writing books about the making of Hollywood movies, I'd like to welcome Jay Glenny. Jay how are you? Wow,
1: that was some intro. Thank you so much, Ed. I don't feel I don't feel worthy at all. <laughs>
0: no, I can only assume you are a massive film obsessive. But how did your making of format come about?
1: Yes, I am. I am a huge film fan. Have been since I can I can remember. Really, how did my um, making of come about? It was a little bit fortuitous, really. Um, a chum of mine had access to some images from the man that fell to Earth, uh, the Nick Rogue film. And we got talking and I told him that I knew the producers of the the film, Michael Dealey and Barry Spiken. And he was going to release the book just literally just image-led and some captions. And I said, well, why don't I write the story? And brought in an old school children of mine, Daryl, and we wrote the story together. And I finally enjoyed, enjoyed it. And I realised that yeah, I really wanted to pursue this perhaps on my own and um, and that's what I did. The, the, as it happened, the, my, I got friendly with Barry Spikins, Michael Dealey and John Peveril because I'd started work on an idea for, to look at British Oscar winners. And they were three British Oscar winners that had won the best Oscar picture for The Deer Hunter. And when I started interviewing them, their stories are so full of rancor and, and uh, mistrust and falling outs and triumph <laughs> that instantly, as any writer would, my antennae went up and I thought, oh, this is a bigger story than the actual making of the film. And I started to approach different few casts, but mainly crew members, and and the story was developing and nobody asked where where the story was going, whether it was a book, a TV show, whatever it was, a radio, podcast, no one asked. Um, So that's probably a a lesson for agents, any agents listening, always ask when people are looking to get close to your clients. Um, And the story had grown to such an extent that I realized I was going to have to um, ask my absolute idol my childhood hero and still my idol um, Mob de niro to take part and i sent the email off and it came back and i can still remember when the email came back i looked at the screen and went really and he because he said yes these two are going to ring you yeah
0: i mean i'm very taken with this uh you know this idea that movies are um uh uh, produced from great and often terrifying conflict and be, be, you know before I started reading your books I always wondered what on earth do all those people on the film credits do and mm. after reading your books I've my opinion is very different I now think you know how on earth does any film ever get made I mean one constant theme of your books is the complexity of the process right
1: yes yeah for sure that's the always been the um the argument against the auteur statement I mean there couldn't be less of an alter art than a film you need thousands hundreds and hundreds of people to make a film and, um, and I think that's really what I, I, I like doing obviously if you're going to do a book about Waging Bull about Deer Hunter you, you need Robert De Niro on board you, you'd love Martin Scorsese on board and you, you're absolutely desperate that Joe Pesci says yes but also it's, it is so exciting when you unearth somebody <laughs> who, who hasn't had their opportunity to talk one of the crew members, somebody who's helped behind the scenes. And um, somebody gave me a, an example many years ago, not sick, but it almost upstairs, downstairs. These guys are like the butlers. They've never had an opportunity to talk. They've seen and heard everything. And now is their opportunity. Sometimes you have to temper it and you realise that you can't perhaps put all their stories in because some of them are a little bit driven by other nefarious means. But uh, invariably, they're great stories and they unearth. Um, More stories for you to ask the main protagonist.
0: Right. I mean, one of my great beliefs is that uh, in upstairs, downstairs stories, it's always the people downstairs who know what's going on. You know, they see both sides of it, whereas the upstairs people only see the upstairs bit. And uh, one of the things about Raging Bull I like is the um, the making of Raging Bull is the uh, there's two characters. One is John Terturo, who's obviously a big star Mm. now. But the, his friend—that that was their big break, right? Getting into that, they were cast as extras originally, and then they were called into. One of them got a line, and and it just kind of. Uh, but it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to them, and the story that they tell is is really thrilling.
1: Yes, yes, and as they were telling it to me, um, it's um, very much like the King of Comedy. They were a precursor to the King of Comedy, just for the listeners to, um, without spoiling too much of the book, I'd. Um, i found an article with John Turturio, and he mentioned that he was an extra on Raging Balls. So instantly, I had to track down the job. And his chum, dear chum, was a guy called Mike Badalucco. And they were at theatre school together. Mike was a year or so older, but they were um, Italian-American, so they really bonded instantly. And Mike had joined a, a small theatre company, uh, um, and he had a non-speaking role as the referee in a, in a, in a guitar boxing match, which I don't <laughs> figure. And, um, and he, made it, he made it his own, but he was also finding work um, as a pop man and he was working on a Woody Allen film and, um, and he had got some work on the Woody Allen film, but then word came back from one of the cast members that Robert De Niro was going to come down to see their show with Cis Corman, the famed casting director. And John had taken over the non-speaking referee role. So Mike said, you better believe I'm getting my ass back there, John. This is my, I'm performing in front of Rob De Niro. Um, so John sort of put on, he said he put on a tight uh, Italian top with t t-shirt, which was like a, a tank top for English listeners. And um, as he said, he was quite, quite fit in those days. And they just made an impression on Bob. And the next day, somehow the other Mike said, to this day, I don't know how, they tracked me down, tracked me down at my parents' home, and said, look, Rob De Niro, I'd like you to come along. It's corman's office with Martin Scorsese. He, he's doing a film on Major Ball. he would like dish. and um, they practiced and they practiced. They rehearsed everywhere, and then they got. They were told they were going to be called in separately, but they wanted to do this piece together. They practiced this piece together. So Mike came up with the idea of stealing two prop guns from um, from the film he was working on, the Woody Allen film, wrapping them in towels, putting them in a bag, and if they weren't allowed, they were going to take. Scorsese and De Niro hostage until they'd done their piece. (laughs) And as they were telling me these stories, it was just this coming alive. And I just wanted to bring that across in the book. And when I told Bob, Bob had no idea, no idea. And he he was laughing along as I was telling them. He just couldn't believe that anybody would be that bloody stupid. But John said, Jay, I'm (laughs) putting it out there. I'm putting it out there that I was, even though I was younger than Mike, there's no way I was taking in the guns. I was not taking in the guns. And they didn't take in the guns. (laughs) And but yeah, and they're the stories that pop up, pop up the film to me. Is that these two guys, these two? Guys. But it also shows to me just how Bob is across his films. These they had they were only ever really going to be extras in Major Ball, and there he was going along to see them in a stage play. Just mm-hmm. remarkable his attention to detail.
0: From Strong Words Magazine, these are the five rules of writing. OK, well, let's get on to your five rules, Jay, of, of unscrambling, yes. the, uh, the unscramblable. I mean, the, this, um, you know, the, the, as I've mentioned, the, the, the complexity of films is extraordinary. Anyway, here is your here is your first rule. The first thing you must do is suspend any form of rational reasoning. Only a fool would believe that Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, Meryl Streep, Mick Jagger, Joe Pesci, Nick Rogue, and many more would contribute to a book. Equally, counter any doubts and fill your self-belief up to the brim that you could pull it off and do not be frightened of a no. You never know until you ask. I mean, just ask is one of the greatest pieces of advice ever. But what happened when you asked?
1: Well, you do get a few no's. You do get a few no's. Um, we were shooting away for a weekend with my um, lovely in-laws and my two daughters, my wife, and we're just preparing the performance book and the yes came in from Mick Jagger. And we just literally had a couple of hours, after a couple of hours driving, had a quick um, refuel and stop. And I remember pulling out of the the, the, the garages and with the, the, it went ping on, on my phone and my wife picked it up. And it was a yes from Mick Jagger. And that to me was then performance was up and away. I already had Nick Rogue and Sandy Levison, James Fox, but to have Mick Jagger was just key for me to tell this story performance just very quickly had been held back for two years by the studio and before it was released so consequently there wasn't that many interviews around because they didn't give a lot of press
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then fast forward to Rage and Ball I had four definitely three maybe four no's from Joe Pesci's camp he doesn't give interviews and then I didn't ask again but periodically I'd just let them know where I was what we're doing how cool things are looking and it was it was a no they, they saw right through my um subterfuge and <laughs> And then I had a I had an email from Bob on it was on a Monday morning. Jay, I need to speak to you, ASAP. Are you free now? No matter how close you feel you've got. Now I'm a fan who's now a friend, but no matter how close you think you've got, there's still your your bum cheeks do clench a little bit because he is Robert Nico and you oh my word, this doesn't bode well. And he wasn't nothing of the sort. It was a it was a great phone call. He'd spoken to Joe on the night before on the Sunday, and Joe was on board. Um, So what would have been a no, a no, and a no. Man, it gives very, very few interviews. So the book would have been, would it have been lacking? I hate to say it would have been lacking without him. But I was virtually, I thought I was finished, Ed. And then Bob opened up this beautiful present for me. And it was an interview with Joe Pesci. The first couple of questions were batted back with a very straight bat. And then I gave him the second, third question that I had was very much the question and the answer. Yeah, that did happen. You're right, that did happen. And I did it again. Yeah, you're right. And then the conversation flowed. It flowed and we had a great time. So, yeah, never take no for an answer. Don't be frightened of a no. Um, There's always another opportunity you can get in there.
0: And Robert De Niro is also legendarily taciturn, isn't he? I mean, how did you manage to get anything other than small talk out of him? Um,
1: I've never put a light on him. I've never put makeup on him. I've never put a microphone on him. It's always been very, very conversational. Um, somehow the other from my first email which made the front of the book and made me choke actually the deer Hunts book and I told him Bob if you don't mind this is going to be the front of the book the, 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 your front sort of quote in the book he said that he trusted me from the first email we knew you were you were straight batter and we knew you were going to do a, a good job and we trusted you and that's why Mel Streep has come on board and that's why Chris Walken's come on board and I, I instantly just build that trust I, I've asked myself that many times Ed, why, why me I mean this guy just embarrassing myself. I wore silk underpants to school because I, um, I'd read that he wore them on New York, New York. <laughs> this is, how much, this is a, how much of an idol he is to be, Ed. And, um, and when you go to an Essex comprehensive, you need broad shoulders to wear silk underpants to school. Um, so yeah, yet- I've asked that question many a time.
0: Okay, no, and a big problem with with interviewing anyone who's been interviewed a thousand times like these big stars you know is that they they may know how to make you feel like you are their best friend Mm. but sometimes their answers are a bit on autopilot you know because they they're answering questions that they've been asked hundreds Mm. of times before um so you list but and then so you they can they're capable of giving you this great sort of warm glow because they're being so friendly Mm. but then you listen back and you realize you've got nothing you know how do you afford Mm. how do you avoid that with these huge names (laughs) <laughs> I go back. <laughs> <laughs> I always finish.
1: Always finish it. I don't think I've finished one interview Ed without saying I haven't anything. To follow up is that okay? If I follow up? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And I, I make sure I always follow up. I transcribe as quickly as I can. And that's anybody who's in our field of, of work of non-fiction transcribing is an arduous task. Mm. But you've got to do it. You've got to do it, and you can't take any shortcuts. Uh, because um, there's always a nuance that you, you feel you, you'll miss if you don't transcribe correctly. So yeah, I transcribe and I send them back. I, I don't, I'm not after too much gossip that is not going to drive my story forward. So I don't mind sharing the interviews with the interviewee. Right. And, yeah, they can change, they can extract, they can add. And I think that builds that trust. I'm not looking to cover and guard my interviews. And no, no, you've already told me that you're not getting that back. You, that's cast in stone now. No, I give them back to them and then they help me build it even bigger.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Now, your your second rule is uh, another one that is, is kind of, uh, you know, should be chiselled in stone for people, I think, uh, is research, research and more research. So research cubed. Give me a yes. sense of the scale of the amount of research you did for the making of Raging Bull. Well, I'd lived with the film since
1: I was a young man, since the starter. so I assumed I knew a lot about it. I read everything good, bad, and Um, Articles, books, watched the film countless times. And then I tend to just put it aside just a little bit when I'm interviewing. But I know that it's there. It's literally there. I don't have too many cast-iron questions because um, I don't really want my... I've seen it happen before. I've been watching wonderful Q&As and the, the interviewer has already, you can see them tromping at the bit to ask their second question, and they're not listening to the first answer. And that first answer can take them on a whole different journey, a wonderful mm-hmm. journey of self-discovery. But they've already asked their second question. And they haven't listened to the first answer. So I tend to, my research, I hope, is really, really, really deep. But I make it seem like it isn't when I'm chatting to them. So we're all very conversational. Um, and I I really want this to my books to read almost like non-fiction, I don't want them to be too... I want them to be a page turn, and there has to be a story up there. There has to be a
0: story. And um, what are your favourite parts of research, Jane? Do you do you, uh, do. do you have a place or an archive that's always the sort of most rewarding?
1: Well, <laughs> sorry to um, sound like I'm clanging, and, um, but Robert Tineyar's archives, Ed, is just... I could retire there happily. It's just extraordinary. So when Bob opened that up for me for the Deer Hunter... You're done, right. I, I was on a plane, and I just spent a the week there, absolutely with white gloves on, in absolute
0: heaven. So that, that was recent. These are in his offices, in his house. No,
1: they're in Texas. They're in Texas. Um, I, I've got friendly with his, who's a great stalwart for him for many, many years. Robin Chambers, a lovely, lovely lady, and she scoured America looking for a place to archive Bob's archives, and they found it in Texas, and it's a wonderful facility. And they have everything. Bob literally kept everything, and when I'm, every film is just catalogued like you wouldn't believe. And there's everything they're and it's just heaven. And then, if you could see in my office now, it's festooned with film books, much to my wife's pleasure, because it's it's not it's not attached to the house. So every time I walk in with a book, it's not it's the house. It's not looking like a complete um, library with thousands of book indoors. But there's more than that in here. I buy film books charity shops anywhere because you never know where they can lead Ah, mm-hmm. oh, he was in there she was in there with that oh yeah that director director so yeah i love reading and just to go back process.
0: just to go back to Robertson and rose archives then what what uh, mm. what what would you what do you find in there this this is some big sort of anonymous warehouse is it that's then full of no it's a university the- of
1: texas the harry ransom center oh, okay um and lots of um paul schrader's in there which is quite fortuitous because we're working we worked obviously on major and ball which paul um, wrote the screenplay for but we'll, Bob and I spoke a couple of weeks ago and we're looking to work on Taxi Driver so I've started my evenings now, i already started interviewing um, the American people in Taxi Driver so they obviously their time difference means that my evenings are taken up now, and Taxi Driver interviews but yeah so pools are there as well but there's everything I mean Bob literally kept everything, there's screenplays, there's um, research, there's costumes, there's interviews, there's everything to do and they're catalogued in every film so for me, I can just sit. Okay, I know I need Raging Ball and I dive into them. I've got access to them on on my PC, and I can find what we need and when we need it.
0: One of the things you mentioned in the book is uh, Robert De Niro's um, taking the reviews of the film when the film came out and uh, annotating them, kind of going through point by yes. point and putting his own uh, sort of doing his own critique of the of the of the critics.
1: That's right. Yes, yes. The for Pauline Cowell, Yes, he um. I just think that's, well, we spent, we had a Zoom, the, the, the downside to Rage Ball was there, was there was a plus and there was a minus. The plus was that um, nobody could say they were on location so couldn't afford the time to talk to me because it was written during a pandemic. So I knew that everybody was going to be locked indoors. <laughs> um, the downside to that, I didn't have one face-to-face interview. It was all on Zoom. It was all on FaceTime. It was all on the phone. Um, and then followed up emails and that. But Bob and I had a Zoom call, one of them, and it was over two and a half hours going at every word in the book. Every word in the book go back to my transcribing. Um, I'd put a couple of words into Bob's mouth that were my, my words and not his. And he picked them up instantly. He said, Jay, I'm sounding like an English gentleman. I would never say delightful. I would never say delighted. I would never say fantastic. <laughs> but we, and he was laughing. as He, he said, Jay, that's you talking. That's not me. I wouldn't say that. Ah, oh, sorry, Bob. <laughs> i got out and delighted because you couldn't imagine what Niro was saying. That's delightful, could you?
0: <laughs> Very good. Now, your third rule, Joe. You kind of, you kind of, sort of uh, hinted at this before. You say, do your research, but don't lock in your narrative. Be willing to go on a journey with your contributors. See where their stories take you, like a great film. Be willing to be surprised. So, which of your interviewees or research expeditions have proved the biggest surprises in this sense?
1: Oh my word! That's a great question, Ed. Um, I wish you'd given me the questions before we started. <laughs> the um, so many of them. Um, once again, a quick apology that I'm just clanging away name dropping, but these people. Um, Mel Street was just the most easiest, delightful interview you'll ever, ever, ever do. From the, literally, as soon as she got the okay from Bob, um, she opened up like an interviewee I've never, ever, ever, ever had. I didn't work. I just sat there and listened, dropped a few questions in and we laughed and joked and it was brilliant. And she took me on some wonderful journeys because she was um, living with the wonderful John Cazale at the time um, during the deer hunter. And it transpired that John was um, sadly dying of cancer during the film. And obviously from a producer's perspective, they were made to feel um, like the um, villains But they had to try and find insurance for him. And you can't find insurance for somebody who literally only had months to live. Mm -hmm. So Bob paid the insurance. He never told me that. Meryl told me that. Bob paid his insurance premium so he could be in the film. I mean, when somebody tells you that, he's shivering. She was shivering as you you could see she was. It was a wonderful moment, quite emotional. I knew I had to ask her about John. He was one of the greatest actors that ever lived, starred in five films, and all of them were nominated for Best Picture. But because obviously it was a relationship that she held very dear, and he died within months of. He never saw the deer hunter really being released, sadly. Mm-hmm. But to chat to Mel Stru, who's never contributed to a
0: book before, was yeah, was wonderful, really, really wonderful. Do some of these people, the the people at the very top of the sort of acting business, does it get to the point where they? they kind of haven't been interviewed for a long time because they've, they've kind of passed beyond that. Uh, mm. um, I don't know, there's the, you know, the, the, when you, obviously when you're starting out, you'll do anything, you know, anything for press, anything for attention. And then it sort of gets to the point where they're just used to saying, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And they're allowed to get away with it. Is it? Do they I, actually, I think so. Yeah. enjoy joy being? Yes. In, then, it's, well, it's I think they pleasure. do. I, I haven't,
1: I can honestly say I haven't had any, well, I've got off the phone and, whew, that was, oh, I haven't enjoyed that. And I think purely because I'm only centred on that particular focus and I'm centred on a film that was 30, 40 years hence. Um, I don't know who, who in the listeners have ever been to a, a, a press conference for a film. You get 10, five minutes to talk to an actor, director. And it's literally, you know that you've only got five minutes. So you have to have three questions. And they have to be quite coherent because you need to write a piece about it. And invariably they're the same questions that the previous person's asked and the next person's going to ask. And you can see the boredom across their face. As you walk in the room, you can see it. They're only human after all and they, they know they're gonna be asked the same question. And so I think that's probably why um, celebrity stars get a, a, a raw deal because they're on these the and around the world promoting a film, being asked the same question time and time again. I'm talking about a the film that was made 30, 40 years hence.
0: One of the great details that leapt out, you know, your book is full of absolutely fabulous details. You know, there's not a page that goes by without being sort of packed with uh, amazing, you know, details and trivia and things that people didn't know. But one of the most memorable I found was Martin Scorsese had absolutely no interest in boxing or sport of any kind. Uh, couldn't stand it. You know, how how did you come across that? Or was that one of the first things he was eager, most eager to <laughs> he did. He
1: was eager to tell me. Um Bob said much the same. That's why it's 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 always Raging Ball is always considered the greatest film in the 80s. But for me, it's a 70s film because it and it was Bob first wanted to make it in 1974, and it has that all-tier 70s um vibe about it. But it took Bob six years to convince Marty to make it. He absolutely hates sports of any kind, any, any kind. It made me laugh as well, because he said that they, they wanted to make the script their own. Paul Schrader had rewritten Martin's screenplay, and they wanted to really invest themselves into it. And Marty, by his own admission, had been partying too hard. He'd, he'd found himself in hospital. Bob had gone to, along to the hospital and said, look, you're the only person that can make this film. Get well. And let's make the film together. So they decided that they'd pack him off to the Caribbean, St. Martin, and the Caribbean. Bob had previously been there on some family holidays. And they went there. and Marty said, Jay, I absolutely hate beaches. I hate sand. I hate sea. Any island I like is Martin." And here I was, Bob would be up every morning running along the beach, taking in the sun, and I'd be sitting there, what the hell's going on? There's this stupid little umbrella, and I'm sitting there underneath this umbrella, absolutely. But he said that the the love that came across of it was because they they had that focus, there was no TV, there was nothing that all they had was literally the focus on the screenplay. So it was the best thing that ever happened. but yeah, as much as he hates sports, I found out he actually hates sea, sand and sun.
0: Very good. Now number four, you say um you have to foster a safe environment for contributors to open up. Don't look to trip them up with a hidden agenda. You say you're in a fortunate position that you've set up coattails. Your publishing company, without any agenda. We're not looking for sensational headlines. We are just looking to pay homage to the films we love. How do you make yeah. them feel safe, Jay?
1: But purely because of what I just said, because of the on that on that one, because we haven't got a hidden agenda. I, I interviewed a, a very 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 senior film person for for both of the books. De Niro books, and I'm going back to interview him again, actually, the Taxi Driver. He's played a, a role in all three of them, which came up in my research and I didn't know initially. And so I'm not going to name his name, and I'm not going to name the writer's name that he contributed to the book too, but his contribution to the, the, the writer's book wasn't in the book because it didn't fit his narrative that he went in with. It was very sort of drug narrative and Mike didn't talk about that. He didn't he'd never seen it. He was talking about other things. And consequently, his piece of the story he's not in the book because okay. it didn't fit with the, the writer's narrative that he had.
0: I mean, it's interesting you say also that you show people what you've um what you've written. I've never heard mm. of that before. Because one of the problems I find is that even if you're being very nice and positive to people and strong words is a magazine which is always positive Mm. to me. I'm not interested in, you know, slagging people off at all. But even when you're being nice to people, often they'll still find something to complain about when they read their comments or read (laughs) themselves being interviewed. And the very worst people for this are journalists. You know, it's quite bizarre that people who spend their lives interviewing others and printing their remarks cannot stand seeing their own remarks, (laughs) you know, on paper. It really freaks them Mm. out. Do Do you find this with film people as well?
1: um yeah well let me clarify that i don't give all the interviews back to everybody (laughs) um i i'm talking about their the headliners just to make them feel safe yeah so i haven't always i don't always give every interview back but you know to me i've found nothing but joy by doing it because i know i'm going to get a second interview we'd go over what we've said before and touch wood maybe i'm very very fortunate ed but i haven't I haven't once been censored. The fear is obviously that you're going to give it back to them and be censored. I haven't once been censored. I mean, mm-hmm. Bob is key for that. He, he always said, oh, "Okay, okay, is that what they? Is that how they remember? It? Okay, well, no, no, that's no, fine. If that's how they remember, it, that's fine. But that's that's what they said. Yeah, that, Bob, that's exactly what they said. Oh, okay, oh well, yeah, you had you and then here got here that that just triggered a memory for for Bob. Um, so, yeah, I haven't been censored. Maybe I'd have a different view if I'd naively done that at the very beginning and people were pulling it apart and what I'd given them was this beautiful interview and it had pared down to next to nothing. But I haven't, haven't had that happen.
0: OK. Now, another problem with allowing people to open up is that you can't always shut them down again. And it's not quantity that you're looking for, right? It's quality. How do you keep people yes. on the right track?
1: Um, perhaps I haven't really learnt that lesson yet, OK? Eh? Um <laughs> Uh, perhaps I'm not experienced enough. I just let them talk. And then the downside to that is that the transcribers it. can take like hours. And I mean hours. Um, yeah. And now I do it all on my iPhone. Other phones available. Um, but previously, I used to do it on a little dictaphone machine. And it wasn't until my wife said, hey, we'd have, I'd have the, all these little tapes. And I've got hundreds of them. Rewinding, rewinding, and then pausing. <laughs> rewinding, pausing. But now, obviously, I can. it's all on my phone. I can to my PC and it's much easier but I've got hundreds and hundreds of little dictaphone tapes. And, you know, if you've um, six and a half hour chat, some of them have been on on the phone, which I've transcribed six and a half hour chat, Ed. I mean, you've been, you know, more than me. That's the 10th circle of
0: hell, isn't it?
1: Yeah. uh, But then it's like, you know, it's like, I've come to clear some boxes out and, oh God, you're dreading it. and you But you open up a couple and you've seen some treasure troves. It's a little bit like transcribing oh god I'm at the end of my tether and then ah oh, yes they said that and you'll get it and you think oh it's been worth it
0: well the, the jay glennie archive must be coming on uh, nicely then with all these uh... <laughs> Well, <laughs> people I... who look at cassettes and mini discs and think what's this what do we do with this
1: you know i heard your chat with dylan the great dylan jones who's been a huge help to me um he said that the one thing he'd love to learn was to shut up and you do find yourself, you're so involved and invested in the conversation. You can feel yourself chatting away and they're chatting and you're chatting. And you feel shut up, just shut up. I want to listen to them.
0: And yes. There's you know, quite, there's in that, I don't know you know, the, the Robert Caro book, uh Working, where he describes mm-hmm. his uh, life in writing. And he used to be a reporter for Newsday, you know, the Long Island yeah. newspaper yeah. and where he, every time he went to interview someone, On his notes, you know, his page of questions at the top, he wrote "S.U.," which stood for "Shut Up" to remind himself to stay out and let the other person speak.
1: Sorry, what was that book again? It's Robert
0: Caro, C.A.R.O., and it's called "Working." So he wrote those those monster, the the enormous book about Robert Moses, and then the the books about LBJ. Um, Oh, lovely! "Working" is a is a, a book I highly, highly recommend. It's a sort of mini autobiography and uh he writes about his writing process so it's about being a journalist and uh and then about writing biography and one of the best bits is where he goes into the starts writing his lbj um uh you know masterwork i mean this is a lifetime's work and he, he his output is absolutely immense but uh he goes into the lbj archive to say um so where's the where's the lbj stuff then and the and the uh the um the the woman who's in charge, you know, the curator or the the librarian, whatever she's called, says, oh, yeah, around there. And this there is about um f- I think four stories of it, you know, four, li- you know, <laughs> levels, uh, something like 30 million documents. And uh oh he word. was expecting a couple of uh filing cabinets and it's an entire building of material. It's a fantastic book, anyway. I hugely recommend that. But oh, let's get okay. on to number five. Now, number five, you say, uh, remove. You, the, the your rule is to remove yourself from the retelling of the making of these films. You say I've always been much more interested in reading the thoughts of my idols and those who are actually there, as opposed to a writer taking centre stage. Is that a is that a tough job, fading into the background, being as you're such a fan?
1: Um. No, I haven't found it is. I always, always, always deeply frustrated running into a news agent as a younger guy and picking up a magazine with a favourite on the cover and rushing home with the magazine, opening up the magazine. And the piece that I'd been looking forward to had hardly anything of the person that I was interested in. It was all the writer pontificating. And um, yeah, I've never been a huge fan of that. There's far more talented people than me that a better than that field, but yeah, I've never been a huge fan of reading that myself. I'd Much rather, if they can take me on this journey with the with the people that were there, that to me is so much more interesting.
0: And some of these people you write about, I mean, they're giant egomaniacs as well, right? I mean, they're, mm. they're they are fantastically interesting, but um, you know, Hollywood is a is an industry that uh, fuels the ego like no other how can you be sure that these people are are credible sources you know and and not just putting themselves at the middle of things and taking credit for things that they they didn't do you know especially given this this absolutely tortuous gestation process that all movies go through
1: yes you do I think that that just comes with just you can just sniff out the ball that Ed, you just can, you just, and you think, oh, hang on a minute, that wasn't what, five people have told me that happened and you're the only one telling me that this happened. So you, you know, my role is um, not to to dilute that a little bit. If it's, if I can see that there's an axe to grind. There was a few things that I did with The Deer Hunter. Um, I don't know how well-versed you are, the director, Michael Cimino, but who's who's had a very sort of volatile career. And there was... Before I I'd, before I'd literally completed the book, my memory of all the interviews was it was a little bit of a Michael Cimino diatribe. So I bought in, I got in contact with Jeff Bridges. <laughs> just out of the, it's purely because I wanted to speak to him, but I, more importantly that, joking aside, he, I knew he, he had a huge love for Michael Cimino. So I got in touch with Jeff to, to talk to me and so he could write the afterward. But in the event, I'm glad I did. And he gave me a beautiful, it was just a cracking interview. So much fun, just as you'd want the dude to be, Jeff Bridges is. Driving down the down the freeway on the way to the Oscars Um, the year he was nominated for I can't remember, Best Supporting Actor. I can't remember which one it was now. And um, and um he was doing a gig because he sings in a band. He was doing a gig the night before. And it oh, was literally dude. Hi, ah, jeez, Jeff, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> like I was expecting a call from another Jeff at that particular time. Uh, he was just brilliant but the reason I got him involved because there was this diatribe a little bit the, the crew really really didn't like Michael Cimino and I put that to Bob and he he said yeah he said he just had this sort of volatility about him and he didn't really handle his success that well he couldn't handle his success he'd come from the the ad world in in New York and it was very much his word was go and you can't really be like that on a film set you really can't we I know we've we all know the Harvey Weinstein sort of styles, stories, but you can't really to get the best out of people. So there, that, there was that. You, there was a few people there with an axe to grind, and that wasn't the book that I was writing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I censored them at that stage. I took some of their stuff out. It was, it wasn't relevant to my story, not the story I was telling. And I was very lucky as well because Michael sadly had passed, but his lady that had worked for him and been his partner for so many many years, right from the very beginning, they met in the ad game, it was a lady called Joanne Corelli. And she'd never, ever, ever given to interview. When I say she'd never given into interview, I really mean that. There was a tiny little snippet of, of, that I found. And we spoke seven times on the phone for an hour, a couple of hours. And she wouldn't let me record any of them. I lie. It was six times. And on the seventh time, I said, Joan, you must trust me by now. I've sent you the performance book. You must trust me that you know, what I'm about, Bob, you know, everybody's trusted me. Please, can I just press record? And we did, and we got on, we'd we'd already got on really well. And she opened up Michael's archives and some of the untruths that had been said about Michael, I could then nip in the bud because the truth was actually there. So that was, that was thrilling.
0: Okay, Now Philly, you've you've very much answered this next one, but uh, uh, so I might have to ask you who, who, who (coughs) who your number two is, but in writing these books, you know, rubbing shoulders with legends, I was going to say, who has given you big, the biggest thrills? So I assume you're going to say Robert De Niro has given you the biggest thrill. So, yeah. was it Robert De Niro? Who else has given you and, and just filled you with pleasure by, um, be, you know, be, being in their presence?
1: <laughs> Sorry, Ed, but yeah, it's Robert De Niro. When he when <laughs> when when he came he came over for um, some I don't know why he came over. It was around Christmas 2018. And I'd already produced the performance book and we were deep into the deer hunter book. So we met around breakfast um, in his hotel. And I took the performance book along to show him that this is what we're looking for, the deer hunter. And uh, I don't care how cool you pretend to be. I don't care who you've been around. If you've got any anything about you any form of love of film when a door opens and robert de niro is on the other side of it he's he's still oh, yeah, robert de niro. <laughs> you know and you're told from the get-go to call him bob because um his dad was robert de niro very claimed artist so that's his dad's name and yeah so he, i was told to call him bob from the get-go but you know so when you call him bob you still can't get over that he's robert de niro and um yeah we just got, i'd like to think that we we I emailed him this week and we just get on really well and um It's the trust that I'll never break. He's he's become just such a dear friend. And, um, jeez, if the 15-year-old boy in silk underpants could have been told that, gee whiz, Ed.
0: That's very good. And, and, and as Robert De Niro wouldn't say, that's delightful. But uh, so, so OK, it's a fantastic book. I hugely, hugely recommend it. Um, people check it out. It's The Making of Raging Bull by Jay Glennie. It's published by Coattails Press, which is your own publishing company. Yes, yeah, that's correct. right? And uh, yes. it's a little bit on the price side. It's 100 quid. How, yes. how do you justify this luxurious price tag?
1: Well, it's, it's a big, large format edition. They're limited edition. They're hugely expensive to produce. That's basically the only justification I've got. They're digi- the, We haven't printed in the UK, in Norwich. Um, so they're just hugely expensive to produce. As, um, put it this way, Ed, I haven't still haven't had my bathroom done up much to my wife's disdain. is all- <laughs> All my money is going on these books.
0: Well, I mean, I, they're a folly. They're folly. Well, I'm all in favour of the uh, of the of the supreme folly. But uh, I mean, and they're worth every penny. You know, it's, it's a, it is a labour of love. They're magnificently uh, well produced. The photography is excellent. The writing is superb, and uh, it's a book that just keeps on giving and will for several years to come. I think. And what's the best way to buy it, Jay? How should people
1: and buy it, Hotels it? Publications online? um yes and we've uh, the feedback has been wonderful i'm not going to, to clang anymore but some of the brilliant names that have bought it some heroes have bought it i mean it's the, one of the seminal films Agent ball so yeah it's been wonderful when then their name pops into the into the inbox and they've
0: just bought your book so yeah fantastic been, so anyone yeah. buying this will be in the company of legends that's um, so <laughs> yeah, thank I you <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me it's been a real pleasure
1: and you, Ed. And thank you so much for the magazine, Ed. It really is. I mean that. Any, You've been bigging me up for the last hour. Your magazine is a treasure trove. Seriously, every month, absolutely from front to cover. Really thank you. Brilliant. Jay, Thanks, you're Ed. welcome. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing.